to Take Note. This is episode number 178 of our podcast, about mostly about keeping a little notebook in your pocket and and trying to determine what you should write down in it, and you know, doing interesting things that might lead to writing down things or reading interesting things or watching or really just living life uh, like I know you're doing, Adam. Hello, Adam. <laughs> Hello, Ted. I am living life. Some Good. people are living life to the fullest. Others, well, just living I mean, life. Yeah. Yeah. Debatable. Yeah, actually, I mean, yeah, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm doing well, Ted, thanks. <laughs> Good. Well, at the beginning of every show, we ask each other a certain question. What do you got? It means what have you written down in your notebook lately? Adam, what do you got? All right, I got a short one. Blink and you'll miss it. Toe shortening, parentheses, radio ad, closed parentheses. Heard an ad not for shortening made from toes, but for uh, toe shortening operations. Didn't know those things existed. Uh, didn't look it up anymore, just toe shortening. As the owner of a, of a not insubstantially long second toe, do toes have names like... The second you mean toe, index toe. <laughs> <laughs> the index, the, my index toe is long. Yeah. It, so it's not like your classic cartoon toe, where big toe goes cascades directly down. So just drop that thing in the mail and, uh, and oh. slap a slap a post. The you, the podiatrist slap slap the podiatrist in the mail. Yeah. Put the podiatrist yeah. in the mail, send them my way. You can pop out, or she, and shorten my toe. <laughs> All right, bud. What do you got? Un- unpleasant. Unpleasant image. Um, do you okay. think anyone's, I mean, are we really looking at classic cartoon anatomy and comparing it to our own? Like, is that a good idea? When the long-toed among us are always, uh, we're always keeping an eye out for society's foot shape standards my index my index toe is longer than my the big toe do you know why they call it an index toe you know the origin of that no it's uh because that's the toe you would use um to find a word in the index when you're reading a book with your feet leafing Mm -hmm. that's your leafing toe yep um okay here's my note Pretty sure the kids are talking to the Google Home in a deep grown-up voice in order to try and trick the time-bound content filter. Does this work? I have no idea. Is it clever? Yes, it is clever. Did I, <laughs> did I overhear them one day? Hey, Google. Hey, Google. I did. I never followed up with them. I don't want to embarrass them. It's none of my business. I, it is my business, but... I hope that they're that smart to try and game the system. All right, what do you got, Adam? All right, I went to see Miranda July, the artist and filmmaker interviewed by Carrie Brownstein, the punk rocker and uh, television creator. And uh, it was an interesting show. We're not going to get into the fact that at the end, Carrie Brownstein dared uh, Miranda July to dance on stage and Miranda July decided to take off her pants and uh, not have any pants on. We're going to skip all that because okay. I think it was maybe a little staged. But uh, uh, no. two notes. 
yeah, they were acting like they were in an uncomfortable situation, but I, I think, uh, anyway, we didn't totally buy it. Uh, but before the show started, there was apparently a couple behind us. Um, their small talk was one of them asked the other, uh, what their favorite type of chair was. <laughs> and then, so, uh, afterwards, you know, <laughs> Jennifer was like, uh, uh, did you, did you hear, I was like, yeah, didn't you see me take the notebook out and write that down? Cause, yeah, I did. Um, and, uh, I said, that must've been a first date. And she said, I'm not sure because I heard the woman say, my mom really liked your driving tonight. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Sorry, it makes me really happy. Uh, two things from Miranda July. At some point in the Q and A, a uh, question asker made a reference to a uh, daily rebellion that she does with her child, which I think um, may be something that uh, I'm not aware of, but other people are. Or maybe it's a Miranda July thing. I don't know. Have you heard of a daily rebellion? Never heard of it. I, I'm intrigued. So Miranda July shared two of her daily rebellions, and the first one. It's called Turning the Tables. And uh, she said that she and her children think about, like, uh, at some point when they've made another kid on the playground angry or someone angry or something like that, and they um, they really get inside the head of the person, the other person, who, like, maybe made them angry, and uh and see their point of view and it sounded really interesting especially the way she described it like it sounded like a great thing to do and then she described something called the bad kid which she really does with her children she said but she she has a rule now where another adult has to be in the house and mm. in the bad kid she acts like a bad child and says things like maybe we should put dad's cell phone in the water Oh my god. And stuff like that. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> so that is the bad kid. Wow. I yep. don't like that one. The quick yeah. just to jump back real quick, if there was anywhere that an awkward couple would have been staged in order to affect the audience attending the show, it would be mm-hmm. a Miranda <laughs> July mm-hmm. show, right? Yep. Where yeah. they were instructed only to Speak in terms of the things they liked or what their mothers thought of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just checking That's in. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, that could have been I, the art. It could have been Miranda July, Miranda July sitting behind us. Right. Then well, they started talking the, about which authors they liked. And both was she of them wearing were... pants? <laughs> you know, I didn't look back. I was too busy writing in my notebook. Okay. What do you got? Good. Uh, okay. Um, now, now... You and and uh, occasional co-host and number one fan of the show, Ryan Sly, were unfortunate to be on the receiving end of this onslaught, but uh, there was just a day where I ended up down a Spotify wormhole and decided to start coming up with some of my own metal band names. Now, I make no claims about these names, good, bad, indifferent, but I will argue Good, Bad, Indifferent would be a great heavy metal band name. It would. I will argue that thinking of metal band names is quite delightfully therapeutic. Uh, So I'll preface with that. But uh, I'll just rattle a few of these off here. Uh, There's Sword Swarm, Dry Soul, Sin Factory, Craven Cravings. (laughs) They just make... (laughs) 
They don't have to be funny, but the fact that I wrote it makes it funny to me. Uh, Greed Magnet, Freak's Assistant, Made in Hades, uh, Church Farter. Church Farter. Uh, the Casketeers. I know you liked that yeah, one. I did like the Casketeers. I think you hearted that one on the on the text chain. Uh, Satan's Cobbler, That's... Hammer of the Dogs, Spitface, Spitface. Spitface. That's a Dick Tracy villain. <laughs> Winged Catastrophe, Hocus Locust. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Dream Tyrant, Triptia. Lord Mortal, uh, Claustrophonica, and Lady Chainsaw. Lady Chainsaw's got to be a real one, I think. Well, matter of fact, I can I can cross reference this because uh, while I was uh, while I was laid up with illness last week, received in the mail a book from a mystery sender. Later came to find out that it was Adam. Oh, there's been no confirmation of that. Called All Known Metal Bands. What an amazing gift from an amazing friend. Uh, but this is a list by Dan Nelson from McSweeney's Books of all known metal bands as of 2007 uh, CE, Common Era. Uh, okay, so what did you say was one already? Lady, Lady Chainsaw. Chainsaw. All right, let's look it up. Let's go to the L's. Okay. I'm in the L's. Okay, L-A, L-A-D. Let's see. Lady, Lady Elizabeth, Lady Killer, Lady Macbeth, Lady Reaper, Lady Sadness. Hmm. I, as of 2007, in the common era, there is there's no Lady Chainsaw. So, so you and I and Ryan, we could. Uh, I mean, start a band I, called Lady Chainsaw. I think I think I think is it. Anyway, um, strongly recommend coming up with your own list of metal band names. Lady Chainsaw is taken as of right now. <laughs> uh, what do you got, Adam? That's all I got. That's I don't all have you anything got. else. Well, I did. I was going to mention uh, we were going to talk about what we're writing in. So, oh yes, um, that was my idea, and I completely forgot. <laughs> Hey, Ted, don't I, forget, let's make sure that we uh, say what we're writing in. I am writing in my Dapper Notes uh, edition. Uh, I don't remember the details. Looks really cool. I think it's called Playground. Um, it's a corduroy cover. It's the, the sort of uh, second to most recent um, edition. It was my dream journal converted. Okay, here we go, by Hugo Mora. Yes, this is the Playground Edition. Um, it's really great. Uh, dot Grid, eh, not my favorite, but working well. Just rolling with it. Paper's great, thickness is great, cover cover just keeps getting better, and super resilient. Um, love this edition, right? I'm writing, I'm, I'm in a Uniball Jet Stream phase, so writing a lot with that thing. What are you writing with and in, Adam? Yeah, so I just finished a... Field Notes, uh, Craft Plus, the blue one. I think maybe they call it. Oh, they don't call it Amber. They call it Aqua. Craft Plus Aqua. Uh, I, at some point while using this, I stopped realizing it was blue and thought it was green. 
Um, I just finished using that, but I wanted to mention the pen I'm using. I found it at the Kinokuniya. I don't think that's how you actually oh. pronounce it. Um, Kinokuniya. That's sure, what I've got. Maybe. That's where I'm at. Yeah. Uh, it's a Pentel Calm, C-A-L-M-E. It's a cool little click pen that I think Ooh. our listeners should look up or, you know, we'll put in the show notes if we can find a link to it. And it, um, it's kind of a click pen that does not look like a click pen. And the click is in the, um, what is it? Like the little paper, the little hook on the pen that you would maybe put on a piece of paper or something. It's very round. This one's very green. The clip. Uh, Yep, the clip. The clip, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. Just kind of blinked. Yeah, the the click is in the clip. There yeah. you go. Yeah. I love that, man. I I need to go and see if I can find one of those. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool one. And then I've just started writing, well, I'm writing notes for what, we're, what our subject is in a Field Notes Wednesday Blue Edition. So that's like kind of like craft, but with a blue cover. And I had started that and written like one word in it uh probably five years ago and uh right now i'm using it for notes on uh the rest is noise the book the rest the rest is noise by alex ross published in the year of the common era of 2007 wow same as all known metal bands i think amazing most books were published in 2007. There is a chapter on church farter in The Rest is Noise, even though it is mostly about <laughs> classical music. So we had decided, at some point you were excited about this book, and I said, oh, and you mentioned it to me, and I said, I've always wanted to read this book. It's a book about 20th century classical music by Alex Ross, very well-received, um, I think. I remember it being well-received. You got excited, I was excited, we decided to uh, put in our zine, uh, the little almanac section. This was a book that we would discuss this year. And then, you know, my experience with it was uh, I really enjoyed it, and it took me a really long time to read it. There's something about condensing 100 years uh, and, you know, every and every part of the world into a book that um, while it's filled with interesting things, it is, like, so wide-ranging and ever-changing i just find it kind of like hard to hold on to a little bit yeah yeah oh i had a similar experience i mean i i came to this book i think i just saw it at the thrift store in the used book section and it was a really nice cover and i picked it up and it was dense and ambitious sounding and you know i didn't even realize when i grabbed it that it was classical music uh, but, you know, saw that it was a New Yorker writer, saw that it, you know, had some plaudits. So I came into it uh, very fresh. And so when, I, you know, when you said you already had it and knew about it, I, I thought that was a that was a good sign. Um, yeah, similar, you know, similarly challenging reading experience. I read it a, a little while ago. Um, you read, you finished it fairly recently. Yep. Notice I, I noted when you finished it, not when you read it, because, you know, you could have read parts of it six months ago. Um, I may have, yeah. I think, you know, it's one of these it's one of these books that, uh, you know, I'm sort of reflecting on, like, the cumulative effect of reading a book like this, where, you know, there, there's no hope of me remembering a particular detail from, you know, the 20s, uh, 
the the compositional flourishes of a certain composer in the 1920s in relation to that particular social strata or whatever. Um, but what I what I think Alex Ross does a fine job of is tracing the path of a relatively narrow art form over a long period of time. And, you know, it's one of these books where he does a good job of kind of uh, circling back. You know, when a new thing leaps forward, he, he makes lots of references to what he's already covered as a way to relate the progression of thought and to relate it back to the past, uh, which, you know, to me, that's, that's kind of the chemistry of what you're talking about is like, how did we get here? Um, and what is, you know, what, what is the new trends relationship to the old trend? I mean, one of my favorite moments was, you know, he spends a lot of time on the, uh, the, the composer Stravinsky, uh, as being, you know, just a, a, a blowing everybody's minds when he arrived on the scene, um, becoming a, you know, iconic and kind of defining a generation of classical music and setting the bar at a new level. And then, you know, 400 pages later, uh, Stravinsky finding himself, you know, being treated as the, the dusty old fuddy-duddy, um, you know, the, the has-been who can't keep up with what the, the crazy kids are doing. I mean, there's, a, there's an element of experiencing that in the course of a difficult book that becomes very satisfying because you've sort of, you have felt that you have traveled a long way between your, yourself, between when Stravinsky was new on the scene to when he's, uh, to when he's one of the old guard. And that, I think that that kind of thing is a, a real accomplishment in a book like this, where it's, it really is kind of an intellectual history. Um, and, and so that reminds me. Uh, there, one of the things that we wanted to talk about is that we're, we we were both writing in the books, because uh, I think when we had this idea, we had also talked about marginalia on an episode, and so we decided yeah. that we were going to write in our books, which is something that we don't usually do, but that we were going to actually take notes in the books. And what I decided to do when I was finished with the book is start copying my notes into a notebook. Um, as a way of kind of like, you know, I know I spent at least three months reading this book, maybe a little longer. And as a way of like, well, if I spent the time on this book and I took these notes, maybe if I go through it all once more and copy it down, there are a few more things that will like stick with me or, you know, they won't just be vague ideas in my mind. And you mentioned Stravinsky and I happen to have uh, one of my, one of, I think my little favorite parts of the book is, uh, this uh this this note on charlie parker and stravinsky when parker came to paris in 1949 he marked the occasion by incorporating the first notes of the rite of spring into his solo on salt peanuts two years later parker spots stravinsky at one of the tables in birdland in new york city and incorporates a motif from firebird into coco causing stravinsky to quote spill his scotch in ecstasy um i love that and then i and then I do wonder, right, you read something like that and then you go to the notes in the back of the book and like, geez, do I, do I need to read the entire book that this little anecdote is from? Because it's such an amazing <laughs> yeah. anecdote. You know, yeah. it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a dangerous book in that sense. No, I, I, one of the lines I underlined 
and that stayed with me similarly. And I think something about the crossover, like jazz, I, 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 I'm no great, I don't know anything about jazz, but I, I feel a little closer to it than classical music. And so somehow, you know, when, when classical breaks through the boundary between it and jazz, that felt special because I, I wrote the same thing about Stravinsky. Um, and this is just a line from Alex Ross. Jazz musicians sat up in their seats when Stravinsky's music started playing. He was speaking something close to their language. I thought that was... Yours is an anecdotal version of my descriptive sentence, but same thing, probably. Yeah. yeah. So one thing that I wrote in the beginning of this notebook about the book that I wanted to, you know, it was, you know, maybe my strongest reaction to the book um I, I i wrote to it when i got it on page 502 but i wrote i spent more than three months reading the rest is noise finishing it at the end of april on page 502 of 543 i wrote infuriating that 40 pages remain for 30 years <laughs> i liked the long book but that may be what sticks with me the most um it, it was just i i did find i i really like Philip Glass, and I guess if there is a composer that I listen to the most, it's got to be Philip Glass. I uh, since college I would uh, play his Kundun soundtrack, uh, Scorsese Tibet movie, and I was convinced that it um, it messed with my dreams in delightful ways. Um, <laughs> and and I listened to uh, this Vikinger Olafsson Philip Glass record, which I recommend uh, everybody check out. I listen to it a lot while I'm reading. And so the idea that that just gets crammed into the last uh, 40 pages well, let me is a little ask frustrating. You this, though. Disp- you know, even though frustrating uh, to, to think about a specific artist that you wanted to be covered more, did the, did the book and the, the knowledge of the book, has it informed your listening of Philip Glass? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Maybe. Um, I think I would actually have to uh move forward in my project of copying everything down because now i'm recopying my notes from the beginning which has all these fantastic anecdotes right so that's the that's the cha- that's the challenge i have there's probably just you know there's so much going on at the beginning of the 20th century yeah uh at world war one even before that the i mean and we talked about this with eric nussbaum theosophy which infected his book the like um I don't know the transcendentalists and the theosophists and the um, the the early reli- like new religions of the twentieth century are so interesting. Um, maybe there's just more on that, but I don't know. I the the stuff that he had on the late twentieth century composers was really interesting, and uh, so I, I do think that maybe they deserved a little bit more space. Uh, how's this on page 500? Phil Lesh, his mind forever altered by a night during which he had tripped on LSD while listening to Mahler's Sixth Symphony at high volume, abandoned composition to play bass for the warlocks who later became the Grateful Dead. I guess I'm just a sucker for that stuff where yeah. classical music like smashes into modern times. Okay. I am, I'm also a sucker, and I think we may have already talked about this one on the show because I loved it so much for... Um, I think it's Alexander Scarabini, Theosophist, 
devised a mystic chord of six notes, his unfinished magnum opus, slated for the premiere at the foot of the Himalayas, was to have brought about to nothing less than the annihilation of the universe, where men and women would reemerge as astral souls relieved of sexual difference and otherly, other bodily limitations. So, I mean, you know, I, when you got stuff like that, like, I understand why you don't have quite as much on Philip Glass. Hmm. And uh, Charles Ives? No, he was a little earlier. Reich. Well, you don't have as much about Reich. I thought there was a lot of good Reich, a lot of good Reich stuff in there. I came away with a more complex vision of him because I think I, I thought of him as a, a contemporary artist, you know, kind of a straightforward contemporary artist, but came to appreciate his, his oral relationship to the world and how, how novel I think his viewpoint was. But I, I mean, I, I think I think your your thoughts lead to the bigger, kind of the bigger theme of this book to me, which is that it's so dense and there's so much going on that it's hard to hold on to to a particular idea from it. I mean, it it's so it's like walking through a it's like walking through New York City and then you know trying to like make significance out of one passerby or something you know that you just sort of see them for a little bit and then they pass by um and you're on to the next idea and you know all of this all of this caveated by the fact that he's describing very pretty complex music theory the whole time yeah i think you and i talked early on about we had to give up on being able to understand any of that yeah i mean i you know i I know what a note is, I think, and a scale, you know, uh, but the the descriptions of messing with scales and tones, maybe this would be insulting if you're a, a music theorist, but it got to be almost comical. I guess, you know, if you read a baseball book and you didn't know that much about baseball you'd be like all right with the foul balls already he hit another foul ball i get it but if if you're in that world then it's just the vocabulary of the world and so it doesn't seem repetitive to you it seems perfectly natural but uh i just got really tired of caring about how many how how this next composer was gonna mess with this was gonna really mess with the scale this time they were going to really do it. And I would go and listen to the music and it would just be kind of, you know, abstract, like pings and pongs and, you know, not to denigrate, um, you know, any art form or any kind of avant-garde approach, but, uh, you know... <laughs> Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I can't follow it either. I mean, I, I think more, you know, I, I think you are more confident in your not following it, whereas I'm like, what is wrong with me? This doesn't make any sense to me. Um, what what I did kind of to, <laughs> to, to counteract my lack of music knowledge and the fact that I just couldn't follow those, uh, those music theory sections that much. I mean, I, I, I read through them more quickly. I spent less time on them. But I also, um, I, what I would do is that when he was talking about an artist or a particular recording that, um, when he was talking about a particular recording, uh, Alex Ross has in the back of the book a list of suggested recordings, and I would try some of those. I think even um, 
15 years on, it's, it's a little harder to find them um, streaming. Just like being able to find the right recording is a little challenging. Yeah. So yeah. I went, BBC Radio 3 has this show called Record Review, I think. BBC Record Review on, uh, on Saturdays. And so I started checking that out just a little bit. But what I would do is I would go to their website and I would find their suggested recording for a particular piece. And I would write that in the margins just as like an interesting note, right? Different, maybe usually different almost always different from his suggested recording and then i would listen to it a little bit um and i you know i just i was happy to have something else to add to the margins in addition to mostly just underlining these uh these passages that i liked you know kind of throwing out like capturing other recommendations um and then trying to listen to them a little and just you know appreciate it even if i couldn't appreciate the theory yeah i i, I think i would say at no point um, did I feel that that Alex Ross didn't want you to enjoy the music for what it was, which is, you know, sounds that create a response. Like I thought that was, that was to his credit where he gives a lot of credence to just the feeling of the music and you know, what, what your average person's response would be and acknowledging when, Things were getting very kind of um, intellectual, um, and so so I I mean I did I definitely came away feeling like I wanted to enjoy classical music more, and that that having more of this context, um, it, it's it's there to help you enjoy it more. I didn't feel any kind of you know barrier to enjoying it. Um, certainly complicated to navigate <laughs> like just so many orchestras playing so many pieces of music and you know you go to you go to uh stravinsky on spotify and you get you know 15 stravinsky pieces published in 2023 alone right. you know yeah and you're just it's it can be a little I, I like your approach of getting a recommendation from a trusted source um so there i mean there's some barriers to this world but i don't know i i, I again it to me it's about this overall feeling like i came came away with this overall sense of familiarity with the with the space maybe not as sharp on like what to do with the information about the individuals. Right. Um, well, right. You know, I mean, that's what... sort of the tricky thing is like, I love those, those anecdotes about, right. The, the guy that's wants to premiere his thing. That's going to end the universe at the base of the world. That's there's not really a, much actionable on that. Right. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's tricky. There's a lot of things that I, that I love in the book. Um, and it's just that, um, it's just that like history of the 20th century that I think is, it is just tough to easily consume. And I, at the, around the same time that we, that I started reading this book, I got this, uh, this biography of J. Edgar Hoover, which is also described as a biography of J. Edgar Hoover as a way of providing a history of the 20th century, <laughs> which I became, uh, I'd really wanted the book cause I'd heard it was good. And then I became really like, I don't know if I can handle another history of the entire 20th <laughs> century. 
And this week, after not a lot of like critical attention, this week the book won the Pulitzer. So I, I think I'm on the hook for it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Well, I'm not reading that one with you. Fair enough. I think it's longer. You're, you're on your own. <laughs> um, you know, thinking back to marginalia as I, um, as I leaf through my copy, I think I let myself down. I didn't. I didn't write enough notes in the margin. I mean, as I've maybe said before, um, but my favorite notes that I write myself are the ones that recap kind of what's happened a little bit and contextualize it and maybe say something a little, you know, like maybe rewrite one of these, um, one of these um, anecdotes or something. Like, I, I always appreciate when I give myself more context because I, I, you know, when you're leafing back through, even if you've underlined something, your brain doesn't want to go back and read, you know, the three paragraphs before that, that provided the the lead-in. And so when I provide myself the lead-in, I'm always happy. You know, of course, that's hard to do in the margins. And I find I do it more naturally at the end of a chapter because it's like there's literally a blank space there to write in. Um, right. So I'm, uh, but I, but I'm always I'm always happy when I do that. I'm annoyed that I didn't do it even more, just to give myself more, my, give my brain more um, to respond to. Um, yeah, and that's why I'm doing it now because I wish I had done a little more, and I wish I had done yeah. more things like the comment that I kind of read that I put at the beginning of the notebook. Um, I wish I'd written more. I mean, mostly I just underlined things that were amazing. I I think I came away with. Figures, you know, figures of import in classical music in the 20th century. And I think that's a valuable thing. The Schoenbergs, the Stravinsky's, the Copelands. I really enjoyed learning about Aaron Copeland um, as an American composer and kind of creating the sound of the West, you know, created by this guy from Brooklyn. Um, just, I love this image of him, you know, kind of the like 57 Chevy pulling up to a crunching stop on the side of like a New Mexico highway. And this guy in a, you know, baggy, baggy sack suit stepping out and just kind of like stretching his arms and like hearing the music in his head and then becoming like the translator of that scene. I love that. I did too. I really liked that. I thought that was really cool and kind of romantic. So, and I knew nothing about him, you know, you, you know, the strains of his music, when you hear it, um, but uh, so that was a that was a section I really enjoyed. You ever but, see uh, the you ever see the biopic? No. Oh, it stars a uh, Stallone, Sylvester Stallone, Stop. Copeland. Stop it! You you music in my head. <laughs> Been making that joke. Uh, I gotta get it out. 25, 25 years, I think. I'm making that I gotta joke. Gotta get it out. How do I get it out of here? <laughs> uh let's do this again next week adam what do you say uh yeah i will come up with some more jokes from 25 years ago for next week's show okay all Can't right wait get to the chopper <laughs> that was my joke from today 25 years in the making uh you can find us on the internet at take note.space there you will find links to support us on patreon should you feel so inclined uh, just keeps keeps the old free enterprise a chugging along. Really appreciate those who uh, those who 
have supported us already, we'll start cooking up something year-end for our Patreon supporters. You can also find a link to our newsletter at the website. You can also keep the conversation two-way by emailing us at takenotecentral at gmail.com. Look forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, take care.